very clear repeat pattern is that folks who come out of a job and start up expect that startup to succeed. And they're doing their utmost to make that startup succeed in, in very specific ways. And I'm like, listen, what is the success rate of startups? One in a thousand. Why do you think your startup is going to be that one in a thousand? Statistically, it's not. If you want to play this game, it means that you're now committing to doing 10 startups, at least. And maybe if you're lucky, one of them will succeed. This is not your startup. This is your first startup. There's a huge difference between those two perspectives. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Pratish Sanyal, and you're listening to The One Percent Project. Conversations that will help you understand how some of the smartest minds build, scale, and operate new ideas and ventures. If you enjoy these conversations, do share and subscribe. About 90% of startups fail. 10% startups fail within the first year. Failure is almost common for startups during years 2 through 5. Given such odds, why does one choose to be a founder? Today on The 1% Project, I'm speaking to Siddhu Ponappa. Siddhu is a serial entrepreneur and an angel investor. His startup C42 Engineering was acquired by Gojek in 2015, with C42's founding team joining Gojek's board of directors. Gojek grew 900x in 18 months and became Indonesia's first unicorn. Siddhu has experience building and scaling businesses as a founder, CEO and Head of Marketing, Engineering, Sales and HR. In this conversation, Sidhu shares his observations on decision-making, why generalist versus specialist is a flawed concept, the probability of building a successful startup, why angel investing is not investing and much more. If you have any feedback about this conversation, speaker or topic recommendations, you can drop me a line at pratish at the rate 1%.live. You can also sign up for the 1% Projects newsletter at 1%.live to get the key insights from this conversation and every other conversation. It is time to listen and learn. Welcome, Sidhu, to the 1% Project. Thank you so much for having me. Four startups, two jobs with an exit. How has that experience been? Let's just say that the version of me that went in would violently disagree with the version of me that came out on many things that I thought going in were like perfect truths. That version of me would probably never want to work with this version of me. You've been a CEO, you've been a PM, engineer, headed HR, sales and marketing. What have you learned from these roles and which of these have been a difficult one for you? It's an interesting question because the reality is that all of those roles are literally, it's a joke. It's my own little joke because the reality is I ended up doing those things not because I wanted to do those things, but because I needed to do those things to achieve an objective I have. But what I realized is that the lines that are drawn between those roles, they exist for the convenience of large organizations to help them reason about their own org structures. That in reality, there is no real boundary between those roles. I would have difficult conversations with people who would say, why are we talking? Why are you working on this? Why are we talking about this? Then I realized for this conversation, if I say I'm HR, no one asks me that question anymore. And for this conversation, if I say I'm a product manager, no one asks me that question anymore. And for this question, if I say I'm an engineer, no one asks me that question anymore. So I did. It just made life easier. That's an interesting one. But which of these you had to get your head around? I think all of them. Going into each of those, I had some very flawed preconceived notions. I think that's generally true for for everyone, depending on their origin story. We all think and act and learn on top of analogies. You learn something in the hazy distance of childhood. You don't remember how you learned it. And that becomes your origin story. 
And then everything that comes after that is built as analogies on top of that origin story. My origin story is programming. I learned to code by accident because I have I was in the right place at the right time with the right friends in the right school and all these things. You know, and I used to look down on a lot of these things. I used to be like marketing, HR, oh my God, so on and so forth. And eventually I started to realize that you want to solve a problem. You have to understand certain concepts because there are certain rules. And often what are taught to you or told to you are the rules are not actually the rules. They are just popular narratives. And once you start to figure out the actual rules, then you can start to make things happen. And for me, I started to define those rules in terms of analogies to programming. And once I started doing that, I found that what was frustrating and difficult remained frustrating and difficult, but at least I made progress. I was able to hire or I was able to build teams. I used to look upon managers in contempt because there's a stereotype of a manager. And over time, I started to realize how important a manager is and what a manager is and what a manager does. And I reached that place of acceptance because I realized that if you build a piece of software, any sufficiently complicated piece of software, there are subsystems in that software that play that role. And they do certain things in specific ways. And there are textbooks written on it. And there are chapters in those textbooks that don't use the word manager, but are devoted to those aspects. That slowly created acceptance and understanding and empathy. And over time, basically, I got to a place where I'm like, okay, I can make some of this stuff. I've never been exceptional at any of it, but just good enough to be able to bridge them. And I think in hindsight, that turned out to be a pretty sweet spot. Would you say that you're a generalist? I think this entire generalist specialist discussion completely takes the discussion in a wrong direction because we don't know what that word means. There is this entire category of conversations I've observed where there are words that we use that we all act as though we know the meanings of. But when you ask someone, fine, we won't talk about this. Can you write a one paragraph description explaining what this word means to you? Career, impact, growth, generalist, specialist. Generalist specialist was especially interesting because at some point, because we were hiring and hiring at enough scale, the conversation came up to, are we hiring generalists or are we hiring specialists? So I said, okay, let me sit down and try to, I mean, and it, was, it was for an engineering role, which is something that I have a, a personal experience with. I was like, okay, let's sit and try to define what an engineering generalist is from a job description, interview pipeline, segmentation perspective, something concrete, actionable that I can hand off to my recruiting team and they should be able to work with. And it proved to be non-trivial. And that's when I started to realize on that, I, this realization happened at different points in time for different aspects of this growth and impact, for example, years of teaching. And in every, uh, and I specialize in teaching recent graduates who are entering work. I run onboarding boot camps for engineers. Every young, young enthusiastic graduate wants to grow and have impact. And eventually I started realizing, wait, I don't know what these words mean. Then I started asking my students, do you know what these words mean? And it turns out none of us knew. We were just confidently using them. So over time, what I've realized is rather than generalist and specialist, what has proven to be more tractable to think about is, do you prefer to set direction and choose objectives? And when I say an objective, a very specific thing like saying, today the world is like this. I want to make the world different from today's world in this objective, measurable way. Today, my customer signups are converting at 80%. I want to make 80%, 90%. Today, I do not have a startup. Tomorrow, I want to have a startup. And when I have a startup, 
this is what I mean objectively by having a startup, that it will have this kind of revenue, this kind of funding, this many, whatever, right? That's an objective. Second axis, and I don't think you can do both. The second axis is to choose your activities. It is to say, I enjoy writing code. I want to spend my day writing code. Enjoy talking to customers. I want to spend my days talking to customers. I enjoy doing X, doing Y, doing Z. Now, you can be, uh, while I've already said that I don't think I've come across a good working definition of a generalist and a specialist, if you stop and think about these two buckets, you'll notice that what we would categorize intuitively as generalists and specialists occur in both, right? There are people whom you would consider a generalist who spend all day writing code. There are people you consider generalists who set and decide objectives, right? Likewise for specialists. But over time, what I realized is if you are the person who gets your kick out of deciding how you want things to change, you want to set objectives, you can't choose activities. You say, I want the world to go from X to X dash. If that involves what other people call sales and other people call marketing and other people call HR, and other people call coding, for you is just what you need to do to move the world from X to X dash. For the second category, if you're the kind of person who says that I enjoy these activities and I want to be able to choose my activities, you can no longer choose objectives. You have to find spaces in the world where someone else has an objective. And for now, for today, for this window of time, what they desire in terms of an objective and what you desire in terms of an activity match. If you desire an activity, you can't set change the world type objectives. And when I say change the world, I don't mean that in the dramatic change the world. I mean that in terms of today the world is X, tomorrow the world is X dash. Here's the delta objective measurement. And I think it's more useful to think about things in these two terms. Do you want to be a person who decide what needs to happen in terms of changing something specific? Or do you want to be a person who picks activities? You can't do both at the same time. You can switch between them. There are economic consequences to switching between them because you lose momentum on one or the other. But you can't do both at the same time. Would you go and hire somebody who is not objective-oriented? All the time. The best executors are people who are activity-oriented because they've been practicing that activity forever. Therefore, they're really good at it. Like people who are objective-oriented are great at wrangling reality in certain ways and making decisions and operating across boundaries. And people who pick activities are just really good at those activities. If you need to write great copy, you need to hire someone who writes copy all day. You wrote a Twitter thread on the obvious startup truths that you need to repeat to all early stage founders. Can you double click on that? First, a little bit of commentary on why I call it an obvious truth. What I've realized is that, and this is a repeated pattern among my advisors and mentors who are usually also my friends is that we find ourselves giving each other the same advice and it basically is, you know what i'm stuck i'm thinking about this how do i make this decision how do i think through this and the other person will be like dude remember what you told me six months ago when i was dealing with that or vice versa right they're asking me and i'm like dude you told me this a year ago it's the same thing you know the realization has slowly dawned on me that for a lot of the important decisions in life and if you're a startup founder things that are related to your startup directly fall into that category there is some kind of a cognitive bias at play that makes you blind to these things they're always going to be obvious to a third person and they will be obvious to you if you are looking at someone else i can assure you that there are things that i've written in that thread which my friends are going to repeat back to me without a doubt maybe all of it at some point and they'll be like dude you said this it applies to you so that's why I say it's obvious. 
And it's always obvious to a third person. And that's why it has to be repeated. There's never been an instance where I've given that advice to a founder and they're like, oh, wow, what a unique original insight. Like they, they know it. They already know it. It's just that it's difficult to see that it applies to yourself. And some of them are very obvious in the sense that if you're building a sustainable business and someone else is building an unsustainable business and the two are in competition, you winning is improbable. It's not that it hasn't happened, but it would be exceptional. So that entire thread was basically stuff like that. I was actually surprised that blew up because I was like, everyone knows this stuff. It's just interesting that we all have to repeat it to each other so often. There's nothing new here. In any of those things that you think you need to repeat at different instances of time, is there one which is very popular? The one right at the top, because that came right off the bat of a conversation that I had 30 minutes before that, like talking to a founder ex-fang, starting up now, early stage. I was just like, hey, so my, my competition has raised a lot of money. I want to I want to build the build, build the business in a healthy way. I want to do good things. I want to make sure that my ecosystem is sustainable. And I was like, look, two things. First, if your competition can build an unsustainable business, they'll beat you. It's going to be hard for you. How do you fight that? Like, they're just like, if they have more money, does it mean they'll win? And I was like, probably. It's easier to build an unsustainable business. That's... <laughs> <laughs> this is a sustainable business really hard. And second is, oh, I want to build a business in a way where I have stakeholder group X, stakeholder group Y, and the business that sort of creates value within them. I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing for them. And I'm like, look, you have to understand that you can try to do that, but you've already got a business to try to build. Now, if you try to build your business and you try to do good things for that stakeholder by setting up another system, now you've got two problems. And these two things don't make your probability of success greater. They make it dramatically lesser, which is the other common bias that we tend to look at a problem and see a solution when in reality, that's actually a problem and another problem, right? Because intuitively, we look at these two things and we look at the probabilities and say, if I do this and I do this, the probability of success increases because we're doing a plus in between. We're saying P of N plus P of M. Whereas in reality, when you combine probabilities, you get P of N into P of M. And you've just like dramatically reduced the probability of you succeeding because now you've got two really hard problems. I say this about hiring in early stage in this market. You already have a challenge building, uh, finding PMF, right? Now you want to hire a team. The probability rates of hiring a team are comparable to the probability rates of finding PMF. So now if you want to build a team and find PMF and you're sequencing those, you've just dramatically reduced the probability of you succeeding. With that kind of mindset, can you land up being a successful founder? I think it's less about mindset and more about conditioning. Every time you change the nature of your work, and not even the nature of your work, the nature of your decisions, I think this is true for any major life event pre-post which your decision-making is very different. Starting a company, getting married, having kids, whatever. Like The pre-post decision-making for each of these is quite dramatically different. And it's very useful to look at the pre and say, what conditioning am I carrying over? And which subset of that conditioning is either irrelevant or actually dangerously wrong on this side? And I think the simplest and most fundamental, there are many, but I think the most foundational one that I would like to point at is when you're in a corporate career, the primary advantage of being in a large stable company is your monthly paycheck. And if you stop and think about this for a moment, a reliable monthly paycheck is a very recent thing. It didn't exist until at scale as a common source of, as being commonly accessible to a lot of people, probably until the 40s or 50s of the last century, the middle of the last century. If you look at people who were living 
and earn earning, making a living a couple of centuries ago, they were exposed to ridiculous risks. You know, if you're a farmer in the 1800s, anywhere in the world, crop failure, banditry, just random bad stuff happening to you that would, I'm not even talking about like threat to life and limb, which is obviously their health issues, all of that. We're just looking at it purely from an income perspective. You were exposed to extreme randomness. And the value prop of the big company was that, listen, I'm going to shield you from that randomness. I'm going to create this bubble within which you will get a stable monthly salary. And when you say that I'm going to leave a corporate to start up, what you're really saying is I'm trading off the stable monthly salary for crazy upsides and crazy downsides. You're completely changing the way you're looking at your income. I'm cherry picking income because it's such a useful sort of core to have this discussion around. The longer you've been in a steady job, the deeper the conditioning is around that monthly paycheck. And it's very easy to consciously say that, you know what, I'm, I'm cool without. But conditioning is subconscious. And you can get completely destabilized because when you go out there into randomness, what it actually means is you're going to fail 10 times. And if you're playing the game correctly, the 11th time you'll succeed and that success will be asymmetrical. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. If you're unlucky, you're just going to keep rolling the dice for decades and nothing will happen. You want examples of this, you look at the careers of movie stars and musicians and stuff, right? Yeah, it doesn't matter what you do. You could be a great musician or a great actor and have no commercial success whatsoever. And that's what you're signing up for. And that can be extremely destabilizing if your sense of self-worth, your identity, other aspects come from the fact that I'm making a steady paycheck every month. So trying to work your way out of that conditioning, and I, again, I want to reiterate, this is just one axis that I'm picking. There are other axes as well, is very crucial because otherwise you're just going to set yourself up for failure I think a concrete example I will give you because this is a very clear repeat pattern is that folks who come out of a job and start up expect that startup to succeed. And they're doing their utmost to make that startup succeed in, in very specific ways. And I'm like, listen, what is the success rate of startups? One in a thousand. Why do you think your startup is going to be that one in a thousand? Statistically, it's not. If you want to play this game, it means that you're now committing to doing 10 startups. At least. And maybe if you're lucky, one of them will succeed. This is not your startup. This is your first startup. There's a huge difference between those two perspectives. There was a recent study, I think 2020 or even earlier, that the most successful startups, the average age of the founder is, I believe, anywhere 35 plus or 45 plus, one of those. So they're more experienced. Does that mean that they have had a number of startups or is the conditioning of a corporate life help them not make those choices or decisions that are younger mind would make the last time i checked a couple of years ago there were 173 unicorns i think we've generated maybe 50 60 in the last year so let's round it up and even 500 say 600 is that a sufficiently large data set to conclude anything from that and that too across geographies across ecosystems with so much the actual cohorts that you can meaningfully cohesively look at once you start correcting for those will be in 100 maybe the fundamental issue with a lot of the thinking and the narratives in this space is growth stage businesses, where I define growth as 10% week on week to 10% month on month, as a thing, have only existed for about, what, 25 years. There just isn't enough history and information to meaningfully draw any conclusion. When people draw conclusions like this, I'm like, maybe, but I don't think you can say for sure. That's a minuscule data set. 
It means nothing. It's noise. What has angel investing taught you? That it isn't investing. It's not an investment. So basically, I realized that there are two classes of people who become angel investors. And this is my own research. So kilo of salt. One class of angel investor is someone who's sitting on a substantial investment portfolio and is looking at deploying, typically in an investment, a typical portfolio, you're going to look at deploying a small percentage on highly risky bets with very high payoff. Normal people would generally make it like 5%. If you talk to people who do a lot of crypto, people with families who can't just afford to blow up their money, you look at them to talk about, I do 5% crypto. And I structure it in a way that I can write off the 5% completely. But if the 5% pays off, I'll make my entire portfolio. That's roughly the strategy. So this is the kind of strategy that I see. And these are all typically HNIs, exited founders, industrialists, whatever, sitting on a ton of money. Now, second thing is structurally that given the hit hit and miss rate of, of startups, even with good deal flow, you probably need to have 100 bets in your portfolio. Given the hit rate of startups, 100 is not an incorrect number. Now, even on a rolling basis, if you want to have 100 bets in your portfolio, you're looking at what? 300 deals a year for evaluation because it's rolling right on an ongoing basis so you probably need to and i had this really nice from stellaris had this really nice uh, in many in this particular case i'm like sharing some of the numbers he quoted because it made sense to me but if you really want to do angel investment you need to have that 300 plus lead a year quality deal flow second is you need to be investing in such a manner that at any point in time your portfolio has a spread of 100 give or take, right? Now, given the typical ticket sizes involved, it doesn't make sense for founders generally to take less than $20,000 per investment per, per ticket. Per. So this also gives you a sense of the kind of investment capital that these people are working with. You're probably looking at roughly, what, 500K to a million dollars a year that you invest. So if you want to make money as an angel investor, These kind of give you the structural parameters of the system you need to set up to expect returns over five or 10 years. It's also important to call out that angels usually wind up with the same liquidity situation as founders, which is to say they're at the bottom of the pile, right? So for an angel to see liquidity from a company, first, it's really long drawn and second is extremely unlikely. I mean, we've already talked about this in that the success rate on that portfolio is very low, but I'm trying to articulate how low. It's easy to say it's low. It's not low. It's abysmally low, right? And it's not linked to the success of the company. It's linked to the success of the company in a manner that generates liquidity, which is a whole other ballgame. You can have enormously successful companies that don't generate liquidity or may not generate liquidity for seven years, eight years, 10 years. The second type of investor I realized is, is people like myself who are essentially operators, who are essentially investing out of their normal investment bucket. This is, we earn money from a salary and we're investing that salary and this is a percentage of the salary we want to invest in. So, and obviously for someone like in that category, there's no way you're going to structure up a portfolio that's going to generate returns. So if you fall into the second category, basically what you're doing is you're angel investing because you want to support somebody, because you believe in somebody. It's almost a signal. There's no way for you to structure it in a way where you will get a certain somewhat predictable average return over time. The only sane way to approach it is to say, this is my angel investment budget. I've deployed it. Now I've written it off. Finish. A third and final interesting dynamic that I realized is that 
the first category of investor when they see a hot deal is looking to increase their ticket size they want to take your typical 20k ticket and push it up to 30 40 50 100k if they can because that's what makes sense for them given the the nature of the system that they're building whereas for your typical operator what happens is you've got very limited capital that you're deploying so even if you have a hot deal what you're more interested in is spread so you're actually looking to cut your ticket sizes as much as possible because it doesn't matter how hot a deal is probabilities don't change enough to move things for you on the kind of portfolio you have so for you if you can go from five investments on your on whatever allocation you have to 10 investments that's actually better so both these two types of angel investors operate very differently the first will try to push ticket sizes up the second will try to push ticket sizes down you talked about being an operator your startup was acquired by gojek Gojek is not even in India. How did that happen? Our startup was basically one of those attempts at building products by funding it through consulting. And I think this is a story you'll see repeatedly where people who try to do this, they'll fail at the product. Then they'll blame consulting for failing at the product because obviously it couldn't be me. If I had more focus, the product would have succeeded. So then they move away from consulting. Then they do product full time. It still doesn't work out. Then they come back to consulting to bring money back in and it was in one of the latter cycles that all of this happened and this happened at a point where i think we were like fourth bust in and one of my co-founders had just had a baby and we were reaching our late 20s and it was all of us were married one of us had a baby it was obvious that the rest of us would have kids sometime in the near future it was very clear that our 20s lifestyle of this month there's money, next month there's no money, maybe next quarter there's no money, after that some money is not going to fly. So we approached consulting with a very deliberate sort of thought process, which we'd never done before. Before it was always like, yeah, you know, whatever, we, we don't want to do it, we'll do it because it brings in money. Once we have enough money, we go to product. This time we were very clear that we wanted to hit a 5 mil ARR on consulting with a 1 mil profit because we wanted 1 mil of investable cash into product while having our basic salaries covered from the consulting business and we started saying listen how do we build a business that does this and given what we'd already learned from doing product this time instead of just going by seat of pants we built we started using some models tools we built a business model canvas model our cash flow modeled our leads looked at the bones of the business and it turns out that the bones of the business are very straightforward you're either building a cost optimizing consultancy or you're building a talent optimizing consultancy Either arbitraging on cost or capability. If you're arbitraging on cost, you're fundamentally competing with Enfi. And they know that game exceptionally well. You're just going to toe with the experts, right? Second is that stuff by then was mature enough that uh, unless you're doing, you're targeting 5,000 employees at a minimum, more realistically 10 to 15,000, you'll die. You, you won't have any business there. And lastly, that wasn't the kind of stuff we were interested in. Just a personal preference. So if you're going for a capability arbitrage business, then the question became, what are the underpinnings of that? The underpinnings of that are good people, good work, good money. Holy trifecta. Drop any one of these and you'll be forcibly shifted into the other model. It creates a, a negative feedback loop. That's you don't have good work, good people will leave. Don't have good money, good people will leave. Don't have good people, good work will leave. You won't get the good money, etc., etc., etc. And we also had a very clear sort of a financial and a strategic target, which is that we are competing for talent against the highest paymasters in the market. 
So that means that the highest paymasters in the market have to be our clients. There's no other way this works. Otherwise, they'll just come, we'll build a great team, they'll offer 100% more, which happened, and the people will leave. Fair enough. Who's going to turn down 80% hikes, 100% hikes? No one can. It's totally fair. Which meant that basically the startups who were our competition for talent had to be our customers. You can't sell to startups because startups are never going to hire contractors because their investors will never let them outsource. Because if they're outsourcing, then, you know, bad thing. Which means that we have to sell to the investors because the only way we're going to get startups as customers is if the investors tell them that please hire these consultants to do your work. So that began a process of selling to investors. Different investors took a year of, almost a year of sales. It was my first full-time sales effort, very demoralizing, demotivating. Now it's second nature. But at that time, it was just like, why is nothing happening? I'm sitting here waiting for days for someone to call back, whatever. So it worked out. We ended up working with Sequoia, basically was building a pool of contractors to solve difficult problems for their portfolio at the time. So we ended up being one of one of those partners that, that they brought in. And we had, as a consequence of this entire thesis, one more thing we realized was that we're probably exposed to the same outcomes as the portfolio. That means that 1% of our customers have a good shot at going rocket ship. 9%, I'm making these numbers up loosely, but 9% will have the outcome. 90% are randomly going to disappear. And if you're a cash flow business, you really have to structure yourself carefully if 90% of your customer base can randomly disappear. What we hadn't realized was, and we realized in hindsight, was even more interesting. If you're capability arbitrage, the investors are not going to expose you to that 99-1 outcome. They're going to root you only to the one. They want you supporting their strongest bets. So when we did this 99-1 split and we had this on our wall in terms of our strategy branches, we were laughing at the one because we're like, ah, 1%. Okay, but we're pedants. Let's make a plan for that. What happens if the 1% happens? What happens in the 9%? What is our cash flow plan to handle the 90%? All that happened. 1% was straight up. If you're hypergrowth rocket ship, you have no choice but to buy your window. What else are you going to do? You're going to try to, and this was, things were bad even in 2014, right? Now, of course, it's atrocious in terms of talent. But 2014 was still pretty bad. So you're growing 10% week on week types, hyper growth. What are you going to do now? Start building a hiring pipeline and then wait for 10 months to hire five engineers. Not going to happen. There's going to be an acquisition offer on the table. It's a matter of time. So we'd already strategically figured out what our parameters were for an acquisition. What do we need to see to pull the trigger? What are our milestones with particular customers? identifying, building an awareness of which customers are increasingly likely to give us an acquisition offer, etc. And in this entire, uh, this all of this was done up front before the sales cycle started. And somewhere along the way, the investors said, we're entering Indonesia. We've got two or three companies that we're talking to. We want to send a bunch of the founders of these firms there on a roadshow to basically pitch to the CEOs and CTOs of those companies that your services are available should you need them. And at the time, I remember that one of the inputs we got is, listen, Gojek's not a priority. We don't even know if they're going anywhere. There are these other companies that are valued at X and Y. Please focus on them. And we did. We didn't actually engage with Gojek to begin with. We engaged with one of the other companies. We had some interesting and challenging work there. And then a couple of months later, we got an SOS. That's also something we didn't realize in the beginning. What we, we thought we would be doing regular contract software development work. But really what we were doing was SOS work. It's just, oh my God, like things have gone apeshit. We need someone who can handle execution in this crazy situation. And that's how we got pulled into Gojek. And then Gojek slowly went through those milestones. 
right? Like the first, it's funny because I, the first milestone was, does the CEO try to hire the person who was on the ground? I think it was like a month into the engagement my co-founder Niranjan calls me from Jakarta. He's like, yeah, Nadeem took me to the bar and tried to hire me yesterday. I'm like, yes, yeah, remote high five, first milestone. <laughs> so that, that basically went through and eventually you also know that the story is real because the numbers that are that the company are reporting to the investors are coming from systems. Your clients aren't, they're not selling you a pipe dream. The actual reality in Gojek's actual reality was mind blowing and the people were super nice which is unusual. So eventually it matured into an acquisition offer and we were ready for it. So we said yes. It literally took us two weeks to go from open to close on. What is the difference between a 10x developer and a vanilla developer? There's no such thing as a 10x developer. There are just developers who care about their work and there are developers who don't. And when I say that, I specifically mean that developers who care about their work are always trying to get better for no reason other than they get a kick out of it. In a conversation you had mentioned or quoted that the more you work on a piece of code, it deteriorates or degrades. Double click on that. So that's a quote from The Pragmatic Programmer, which is a great book. I highly recommend it. It's essential reading for any professional programmer and for anyone in the tech industry who's looking to run a tech team, either in a large company or as a founder, it still is essential reading. Basically, it says the entropy of a code base always increases. Over time, I realized that's actually a special case of a generalizable statement. The entropy of any complex system always increases. The entropy of an economy always increases. The entropy of society always increases. The entropy of the laws of a country always increases. Things get more complex, more conflicts emerge. Unless the system is static, its entropy will increase. Now, with code, this is definitely true. And it's very important to realize that in any such situation, what you're trying to do is make the rate of degradation as slow as possible. It's true for organizations as well, right? Any organization that's changing and growing, its entropy increases. And eventually, at the end of the day, there's that very interesting sort of life cycle of an organization, the McCloyd life cycle, which is there in the Gervais principle, which basically says, eventually the organization gets digested and rebuilt from ground up, which is a polite way of saying, everyone gets laid off and the whole organization gets rebuilt. Right? It's the same thing with code. Eventually it gets bad enough that the whole code base is rewritten. Just a reorg, which is a polite way of saying it. A rewrite and a reorg, very analogously, are extremely risky options. And they're options that you execute when the entropy of the system has reached such a level that nothing is working anymore. Do you think retirement is one of the other ways of being laid off? And the reason I bring that up is because when I look at 100-year-old companies, 120-year-old companies, this is the Coca-Colas of the world, they've never run out of business. They've always reinvented themselves or at least kept themselves very valuable throughout generations. How have they done it? Basically, all the people who built a particular type of business were eventually laid off one way or the other when the business reinvented itself. It's not the same business. It's the same brand. It's no longer the same business. There are exceptions to this. I think Coke is an interesting exception, but I think it's safe to say that there was a time when Coke was not fundamentally a marketing and a brand business. And then there was a point in time where it's fundamentally a branding exercise, right? It's not the the essential value of the product anymore. It's the brand perception of the product that leads to purchase. But I think IBM, a, a less of an outlier example, is the same brand. That's all. Nokia, same brand. Business is completely different. How has reading impacted you? It, dramatically. There are only two ways in which people change. You change by doing stuff and learning and you do stuff by studying and learning so dramatically i can't even begin to say to list all the things that have changed because of reading every major mutation in my personality 
and in my thought process has been triggered by studying or reading something that catalyzed my experiences few books that you would recommend if you're talking about startups i think fooled by randomness would be fairly high on the list from theory perspective from a practical operational perspective principles of product development flow i think these two books would be pretty high on my list like one is understand the game you're playing the others understand how to play the game you have an hobby of riding bikes is the experience what you enjoy or it's actually the machine or it's a combination of both the machine conceptually i'm not a wrenching rider right so i i don't get into wrenching on the bike myself conceptually i like it from a sort of a technical perspective and that i'm fascinated by different types of engines the dynamics that goes into a motorcycle something that people don't widely know is that it is impossible to model the there's no good physics model for a motorcycle so you can't design a motorcycle by modeling it that's why building motorcycles is so hard and that sort of stuff really interests me the theory the practical wrenching stuff not so much i think what i genuinely like about motorcycles and this is changing as i age which is also interesting is i love the risk i love knowing the knowing that what i'm doing if i make a mistake is going to have serious consequences and this used to be very true in my early 20s and with each passing year is less true like now if i go out to ride a motorcycle i am actually shockingly cautious now even if i'm out on the race track i'm taking it easy i'm not trying to take risks anymore brilliant i think that's a great place to close this conversation thanks adu for being on the show thank you so much for having me you can find the show notes for this episode and every other episode on 1%.live If you enjoyed this conversation, share it on social media and leave a review. See you next time.